Hello there, servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. What do I have for you today? Today we're going to talk about the Iran nuclear deal, an interesting situation in Chad, and another U.S. foreign policy blunder. All of that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. So earlier this week, well, earlier last week, I keep forgetting, uh, Biden, President Biden, uh, delayed the U.S. withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan to September 11th, 9-11, instead of the May 5th deadline that the Trump administration had proposed. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. This could still be a diplomatic victory, a much-needed one, given um, the troubles this administration's been having in foreign affairs in general, despite foreign affairs being kind of a main focus of the administration. This could still be a much-needed victory if we get to 9-11 and nothing happens and we pull our troops out. I do not believe that is going to happen. At least not, you know, peacefully anyway. We could still pull out. It's just, we'd be getting shot at. And I say that because the May 5th deadline was negotiated by the Trump administration and the Taliban. So the Taliban um, was a part of the deal. They held up their end of the deal. They didn't attack American troops. Or at the very least, they toned it down, which is really what they promised. A reduction in violence. So they did that. And the U.S.'s end of the deal was that we'd be gone by May 5th. Well, May 5th. May 1st. We'd be gone by May 1st. That was our end of the deal. And what we have here is Biden, his administration, pushing back our withdrawal date. And without consulting the Taliban, who are basically seeing the U.S. completely violate the agreement that they came to. Because they didn't renegotiate. And say, okay, we're going to pull out on this date instead. No, America just said we're going to leave later, which isn't what the Taliban agreed to at all. So now you have the Taliban getting belligerent, saying that they're going to be, well, violent if all troops are not gone by May 1st. And it's it could have been easily avoided. All you had to do was take the win and leave. Afghanistan? Everybody wants you to do it. I don't know people who still have their heads screwed on who want to stay in Afghanistan of all places. Even more internationalist people and more interventionist people who actually are agree with America intervening in other people's business around the world. Even they don't want us in Afghanistan. So why this insistence on staying even just hopefully for a couple more months in this situation i don't under, i don't really see the impotus behind it i don't know quite what we gain now that we haven't gained in the last uh, 20 years almost 20 21 now 
I don't know what we what we're I don't know what we're gonna gain from it now that we wouldn't have gained from it already unless it's really just about Iran. There was there's always talk about pincering Iran. We'll have uh, troops in Afghanistan, troops in Iraq, and effectively you encircle them because we control the Gulf with our navy, the Persian Gulf that is, and this major encirclement maneuver. And I guess that's kind of like the geostrategic thing. It makes sense if you're playing a game like Civilization V or Civilization in general. Or it makes sense if you're playing what Hearts of Iron. It doesn't make sense in the real world because we have no reason to be in Afghanistan or Iraq. And that's that. You could justify having the Navy there to protect oil shipments out of the Middle East from the Gulf, that could technically be justified. Everything else is questionable at best. So why not take the W, the, an easy W that was set up to you, set up for you by the previous administration? I don't know. Maybe they're planning something, the Biden administration that is. But I don't, yeah, I don't know why they would do that. And um, but, well, I can tell you what I do know. The Taliban is not happy, and they're probably going to get very violent come May 2nd, come May 2nd, when the foreign troops are not gone like they were, like they agreed to, because remember, the Taliban made a deal with America, and uh, it is us reneging on our end of the deal. So now, we're going to have the Taliban come May 2nd, uh, shooting at American troops, and then that's going to cause a big uproar, and then all the warmongers in office are going to be like, see, this is why we have to stay. We can't endanger our troops, but this is why you, you can't just leave. This is why you can't just pull out. We need, we need an exit strategy. Oh, we need an exit strategy. Don't you love hearing that one? <laughs> but yeah, that's how I envision this going down. Unless some sort of new agreement is reached with the Taliban, because they kind of have to be included in the deal, otherwise they will have no stake, and they'll say, screw your deal, we're going to shoot at you. So, we'll see how that goes. I hope for the best, but it's looking like the worst. So, you know, I'm stuck in a, like a rock in a hard place, but we'll keep on keeping on uh, all the way to Sudan who is currently set to send the first delegation to Israel. Uh, and they, last year, signed on to the Abraham Accords uh, a few months... Yeah, they signed on to the Abraham Accords a few months ago, which effectively is them and a host of other Middle Eastern nations making peace with Israel. And it's a very nice thing. Major W uh, for U.S. foreign policy and brought us one step closer to getting out. Because if there's peace in the Middle East, then you don't need troops there. Uh, which brings into question the entirety of our European deployment. But that is a topic for the end of the episode. <laughs> and I'll I'll get into that when I talk about uh, America towards the end of the episode. Um, meanwhile, Vietnam... Uh, while we're still on the topic of the United States, America has removed Vietnam from its list of currency manipulators, something that the Vietnamese government has been very appreciative of, and it's kind of a, uh, it's a nice little thing, you know, used to be at war, one of a really infamous war, and now we're, 
kind of on good terms, yeah. Maybe it's just the China effect, who knows. But, nice to see, you know, us not bullying other countries. Very, very, very nice. Meanwhile, Biden has met with the Japanese Prime Minister, Yoshihida Suga. And they they had major talks regarding the stability of the region. Obviously, they talked about China, although they won't come out and say that. They did talk, they, I bet you, they talked about China. Especially given the whole quad thing, which is America, India, Japan, and Australia. Who, then they, their representatives met, uh, what, a week ago? Or two weeks ago? They've been in the news, right? I was preoccupied, but, yeah, preoccupied with the news, yeah. They were, they've been in the news, those four countries, so seeing two of them meet up together, together, um, is not probably i guarantee you they were talking about china let's let's just all be real here we know why they got together um china and the fact this is a new u.s administration and biden doesn't show himself very often uh, i remember way a while back putin challenged him to a debate that was with the whole um putin is a killer thing going on <laughs> interesting times we live in uh but there's <laughs> oh my goodness just thinking about that is kind of funny <laughs> but um anyway so there was that's a major meeting between the quad which again is the u.s india japan and australia who are currently working together to try to box in china for reasons um uh, for reasons having to deal with Chinese expansionism, but then again, Australia is really far away. India and Japan are the only ones who are really going to be carrying the weight in that alliance in the event that America just disappeared one day. Uh, and truth be told, India and Japan could do it by themselves. These are pretty strong countries we're talking about here. And... I always go back to the fact that they have a 10-year military pact with one another, which I guess is, what, nine and a half years old now? Well, not years old. They have nine and a half years left on it. So, for the time being, India and Japan are, in the most basic terms, allies. They are legitimately allies with one another independently of the United States. And that's in major development. That has fueled me to the belief that it, the Cold War is between India and China, not the U.S. and China. But leave it to interventionists to drag us into this Cold War. And we'll, we'll see where the future goes. I, we already know that I am an isolationist. And that I don't really see why we should be here. And I'll... I'll have a nice, fun little segment at the very end of the episode uh, where I'm basically going to rant about our foreign policy and how it's not up to the glorious specifications of isolationism. But, um, yeah, we have Vietnam being removed from the U.S. list of currency manipulators, U.S. meeting with Japan, and it's probably going to be followed by the U.S. meeting with other 
countries in the in the region, you know, to host meaningful talks rather than just a meeting. Uh, and speaking of meaningful talks, we have a bilateral meeting between India and Pakistani diplomats that have taken place in the United Arab Emirates. Um, both sides said that they appreciate having a meaningful dialogue with one another, and I guess despite the tensions, India and Pakistan, oddly enough, are pretty good at maintaining dialogue uh, with one another. So, given the tensions that they have with one another, that's actually a really good thing. Uh, America and Russia had to figure that one out during the Cold War, but India and Pakistan pretty good at it. Doesn't stop them from shooting each other's jets down, but hey, you, you can't win them all. So there's that. Uh, India probably really, really trying not to have to worry about their western periphery in the event of anything happening with China. They're currently locked in a perpetual border skirmish with both Pakistan and China at the same time. And then there's a military coup that happened in Burma. And Bangladesh is quiet for now, but India has a bit of a workers' revolt going on uh, in their northeast region, which is the region of the country closest to China. So I'd imagine it's a pretty sensitive issue, more sensitive than it would have been otherwise, just due to the proximity of this region to China and the mass you know, support that it has garnered throughout the country. So India's kind of in a tough domestic spot so it's it makes sense that they would try to deal with some of their neighbors and by some i mean the neighbor that they probably are most afraid is gonna do something crazy pakistan well maybe china's making moves on that position right now but for now i'd imagine they still are more on high alert when it comes to pakistan than china china is engaging with them in fistfights in the Himalayas, Pakistan is shooting down jets. So, that kind of, based off the escalation there, it would make sense that they would try to do something with Pakistan to kind of get them off their back. Uh, and they're really on their own with that one. Japan is a bit too far away, at least for now. They would need a, They would need a bigger navy to really do anything against Pakistan, and they would have to be very smart with it. But, that's India and Pakistan trying not to kill each other, but what else is new? I'll tell you what isn't, technically, or maybe it is new. We talked about this, uh, Russia is continuing to build uh, icebreakers, which are ships that are designed to bust through ice. We talked about this in the, the episode we did on the Suez crisis, the new Suez crisis, as I've tubbed it, tubbed, as I have dubbed it, if I can get my English together today, sometime this year. Uh, yeah, we talked about Russia really, really trying to sell their Arctic Sea route uh, from Europe to Asia as an alternative to the Suez Canal. And we talked about how the crisis in the canal was going to pave ways to things like this, regardless of how fast it was solved. And it was solved a lot faster than even I thought it would be, but the damage, again, has been done. You have... Ru attention is on the Russian 
Arctic Sea Route, and I'd imagine Canada won't be too far behind in trying to advertise the Northwest Passage, which basically takes you along the northern coastline of Canada, past Alaska, and then you go through the Bering Strait, which is between Alaska and far eastern Russia, and that way you can get to Asia, or to North America, if you're really, if you coming from Europe, it's, well actually if you're coming from Europe then you're not using the Northwest Passage, or maybe you're if you're Western European, uh, geography on a globe is weird, but... I'd imagine if the Canadians are smart, they're not going to be too far behind in advertising the Northwest Passage. Um, I haven't heard any rumblings about that one, though. So we'll have to see about Canada, but I know Russia's on it. They're on their game. Russia is on their game. They're building these icebreakers, uh, and they're openly advertising that they have an alternative route to the Suez Canal right off the hot off the heels of a major crisis that has cost the world billions luckily the crisis was solved quickly again but again the damage is done and alternatives are being sought we even talked about china and how the belt and road is technically going to be an alternative especially now that they have access to iran and iran's going to be coming online in a matter of years um with major infrastructure projects and China as a easy to access market for dumping their oil onto which is going to revive the Iranian oil economy it's also going to make them economically dependent on China for their economy but at this point I don't think the Iranians care all that much given that they're economically isolated from basically everyone else what do they have to lose uh, sovereignty maybe uh, but we'll get into Iran a little bit later on too. Oh, my voice is so my voice is so hoarse. Oh my goodness. Uh, so there is that Russia capitalizing off the Suez crisis. Meanwhile, France has reached out to India to strengthen ties and reaffirm the India-France-Australia trilateral mechanism. Now, this is an interesting thing. It's actually been around for a while. Uh, they cooperate on a number of things, ranging from their economy to climate change um, to, I guess, these days, more China. France hasn't seemed too belligerent on China, but given that two of those three are uh, taking China as a serious threat... I'd imagine that's probably going to pull France in that direction as well, to some extent. And I guess another interesting thing that this points out to me is kind of how Australia and India are de facto allies as well, in also independently of the United States. So we talked about this like a couple what months back. The last time I did like a major segment on the new Cold War between China and India, we talked about how some of the early battle lines were being drawn already and how Australia's trade war with China was putting them very quickly into India's camp. And we can see here that there are other agreements that have happened prior to that trade war and even a new cooperation the quad happening after this trade war that is 
driving Australia and India very close. To the point where, with the U.S. there, they're talking military cooperation to whatever extent that that means. But I'd imagine, given how close they've become, and basically with India at the center of everything, even if the United States were absent, these cooperations would continue. Because a lot of them are independent of the United States. The France-Australia, the India-France-Australia trilateral mechanism, the India-Japan defensive pact, and what, the Quad? Only one of those even has the United States as a factor. So you have Japan and India allied independently of the United States. You have India and Australia de facto allied independently of the United States. India is being reached out to by other powers outside of the region who have interests within the region, and that goes up to and including the United States. So, and I have strong opinions about what those interests in this region are, and by opinions I mean questions, but you can see how all roads lead to India. So even now, for those who thought I was crazy for saying the Cold War was going to be between India and China, maybe you can kind of start seeing what I'm meaning now, given that everybody's going to India uh, as like a bulwark against China. If only as a bulwark against China, that still makes India the center of everything. Especially when whether or not the United States is going to be there is still technically in question because Biden has only been there for what, three months officially, not even officially. It's um, April 19th. He has a day left to go before he's even been there for three months. And there's always going to be the specter of what if he loses the election? Uh, what if what if America leaves? Because that's what Trump Trump came in and shocked everybody and made them all panic. What if Trump comes back? Everybody speculates that he's going to run again. What if somebody like him runs again and actually does leave? That specter is always going to be there, at least until the next election, or what, a couple elections after that, to see exactly the course that America's going to take, because America's kind of at a precipice right now, and we haven't, we still have yet to decide which direction we're going to go. I am obviously rooting for the isolationist path, but that may not be the path we take. But whichever path we take, it's going to take a while to actually see that path. And in the meantime, the world is not going to wait for us to figure that out. So you have these alliances independent of the United States that are forming, already having been formed, and then getting stronger between powers within the region and outside the region with India at the center. So keep your eyes on India, folks. Uh, I know I may have sounded crazy when I said this way back in 2020, all five, five million years ago, but it's starting to, starting to come into view, isn't it? Yes. So maybe one of these days I might be able to make a new segment uh, covering the Cold War as it is now. It's kind of gone 
a bit quiet in the east, but hey, the Cold War did that uh, plenty of times, so we can we can wait for some news on that. I'd imagine it won't take too long, but we'll enjoy it looking at the rest of the world in the meantime. Uh, in other news, though, the Turkish-made drones, uh, Turkey is making a strong domestic military industry, um, which they used to back up Azerbaijan in the war between them and Armenia. And we talked about this last episode as well. Was it last episode or the episode before that? We talked about in a kind of sort of in passing how people were talking about, yeah, we were talking about other people talking about drones that Azerbaijan used and how they turned the tide. Where all the wars before that, Armenia would dominate Azerbaijan, but this time Azerbaijan dominated Armenia, at least on the battlefield anyway. We know who really won that war, and it was neither of them, and it wasn't Turkey either. But in that war, Azerbaijan uh, pulled out some serious stops. You know, we talk about pulling out all the stops. Azerbaijan pulled out all the stops, and they wrecked Armenia. At least that's what people say. That's what people make it seem. But then the question is, where'd they get the drones? Apparently, they got them from Turkey. And those Turkish-made drones are now flying over the Donbass in Ukraine. And I swear, no, and I know for a fact, we were just talking about this last week, also kind of in passing. We were talking about the potential for Turkey sending drones into Ukraine. Because we talked about how... We talked about the parallels between the war in the Ukraine and the war in the Caucasus. We talked about how Turkey, getting closer and closer to the Ukrainian government, could start to give them drones, and here we are. Here we are. We have drones now flying over the Donbass. Now, how will the rebel republics respond? Uh, They'll respond to whatever the best of their ability is, but I'd imagine... They'll probably just get backed up with an Russian S-500 system or some mythical godforsaken Russian S-600 that the world doesn't even know about. It has lasers and it shoots down drones specifically. That'll be a thorn in the side to Turkey and any expansionist ideas they might have for their north. But I, I would imagine... No. Yes. Maybe. I'm trying to get my words together here so I don't, like, trip over them again like I've been doing for the rest of the episode. Um, I s it's so strange to see this because we were literally just talking about this last episode when we talked for, like, what, a couple minutes about the Erdogan visiting Lukashenko in Ukraine and reaffirming his commitment to the Ukrainian side in that war. We were just talking about this and the potential for this happening, and now here it is. I mean, I guess it wasn't that hard to see, but it is interesting to see it happen, especially on such a short timetable. Maybe the drones were always there, and I just, just now saw the news about it. That's a possibility. But it is an interesting thing, and it'll be an interesting thing to watch, especially as tensions heat up between the Ukraine and the rebel republics in the Donbass. 
Um, because if their fighting reignites, like really reignites, instead of the shelling that's been going on, where they've been routinely breaking the ceasefire to th throw ammunition at each other, but not move really, because they're like entrenched. We could see if the war breaks out again, it'll quickly evolve into a war movement. I speculated that much just based off the Russian support for the rebels. But with these drones, Ukraine has a powerful asset now as well. Especially after lo basically losing their entire air force to Russian air defense systems. Um, which the Donbass republics, uh, Donbass, the Donetsk and Lugansk uh, are easily well within Russia's defense air defense umbrella which is how the uh, ukraine lost its entire air force and i know entire is a bit of an exaggeration but yeah, functionally it doesn't exist anymore these drones could temper if only temporarily they could change that fact and we see that drones are really effective against armored units uh land units and they kind of have to be hard countered by other aerial units at least that's what it seems right now. Maybe direct energy will work against them. But I don't know if any direct energy platforms that are in like broad service where they're still in experimentation. But we could see, should this war, you know, go out of the fake ceasefire and into a back into a war movement that it was for, uh, when it first broke out. We, I'd still put my money on the rebels, you know, they're backed by Russia, and Russia's right there, they have a hundred and something thousand troops on their border with Ukraine, I, it just would not end well for the Ukraine, but with these drones, the Ukraine could inflict some heavy losses on the attacking side, uh, and maybe fight them to a standstill at the Dnieper River, that's the thick river that runs straight through the middle of Ukraine, uh, their capital is situated on that river. Um, we could see a standstill along that river, um, or we could see the Ukraine lose, but inflict heavy casualties in the process. Either way, my money is on Ukraine losing, but the presence of these drones really does raise some questions and some interesting things to look at. Um, yes, so much for rapid fire, the news. But I guess now is a good time to transition into the meat, so stay tuned. Alright, alright, let's get into the meat of this episode. And we'll start with Iran. I said I'd get to Iran, and here we are. Excuse me. Uh, so we're going to ask the question, is Iran going nuclear? There's a whole bunch of talk about Iran these days, whether or not they're going to return to the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, how close they are to enriching enough uranium to the point of getting an atomic bomb. So we're going to talk about it. So we're going we're gonna to start right here. A remote nuclear facility, 165 feet underground, near the small city of Natanz in Isfahan province, Iran, was recently hacked by a covert operative who caused an explosion at the facility and did a lot of damage. Now, the operative here was accused of being an Israeli agent by the Iranian government. These, this guy successfully fled the country just as the explosion went off. 
So it was timed. We know that much. It didn't happen immediately. This incident, early last week, has greatly inflamed tensions between Iran and Israel, a pair of countries who recently have been making headlines because of how poorly they've been getting along. And really because of how much the Israelis have been fucking with Iran successfully. We talked way back a couple months ago when two dudes on a motorcycle took out their scientist. But <laughs> I still can't believe that story. Two dudes on a motorcycle took down uh, one of Iran's top nuclear scientists and then just drove off. I don't know if they got caught or not, but that's some savagery. That's probably going to start a war at one point, I swear. But We're going <laughs> to... The operative got out um, right as the explosion went off. Now, again, this is greatly inflamed tensions between Israel and Iran. We did an episode on it before this, and it seems that the situation has not gotten any better. Um, but... This incident has also seemed to add fuel to the fires of Iran's uranium enrichment program. And that has set off a whole host of alarm bells in a whole host of people. Um, just last week, Iran had claimed to be producing U-235 at 55.3% enrichment. Um, and... Kind of like a side note right here, U-235, that is uranium-235, uh, which is the isotope-235, that's the important factor here, uh, because the specific type of uranium, U-235, U-235 is the specific type of uranium that is used in uranium-fueled atomic bombs, as opposed to the other isotopes of uranium, such as U-236, a byproduct of using nuclear fuel, it's non-fissile, and is really just radioactive waste uh, that's hard to get rid of. Uh, that one, or U-238, uh, which is the more common and natural isotope of uranium. If you find uranium in the wild, it's probably U-238. So those are just a couple iterations of uranium. But U-235 is important because it is fissile and it can be used for a bomb. And so it is, or at least that's what it seems and that it's going to be used for. The fact that it's fissile means that it can also be used for nuclear reactions uh, for energy generation purposes. So, it just depends on what the person using it wants to do. Uh, so, this... Uh, I guess we'll start before we get to that. The International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, has verified that Iran is currently enriching uranium at around 60%. So, the government was pretty accurate as to what they were saying or maybe these guys are panicking and they're inaccurate but regardless this is what we have to go with right now um so they say that iran is currently enriching uranium at around 60 percent 
which is consistent with what the government of Iran said, which was 55.3% enrichment. And for reference, you need about 80% or above, uh, 80% in, you need about 80% enrichment or above to have a functional nuclear bomb. Uh, so there's that, and that's the side note. And this has fueled calls, helped fuel calls, because Biden winning the election uh, itself kind of reignited this issue. But this has really fueled calls for a return to the JCPOA. Um, the JCPOA... I actually decided to look into what this was. The JCPOA stands for the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Now, uh, the JCPOA uh, is more commonly referred to as the Iran nuclear deal. So if you ever hear either one of those, just know that they're interchangeable because they're the same thing. Uh, the agreement was signed back in 2015 by France, Russia, the UK, China, the United States, Germany and the EU, so all five of the UN Security Council members, and Germany plus the EU. This deal was meant to limit the number of centrifuges which were used, uh, which are used to enrich uranium. Uh, it was meant to limit both the amount of low enriched uranium and outright ban high and medium enriched uranium. Uh, there were specific clauses that would allow them to investigate should they feel that Iran was reneging on the deal. Uh, and they could send, like, inspectors. However, President Trump, uh, back in 2018, removed America from this agreement in favor of applying sanctions to Iran instead in what, was, what later became known as the Maximum Pressure Campaign. Um... Uh, Sanctions, which have since crippled Iran's economy, um, which is part of the reason that they, number one, were so quick to sign on to the Belt and Road when China reached out a couple of weeks ago, and why, number two, Iran is seemingly so adamant, or at the very least so vocal, about the U.S. returning to this deal, and more importantly, removing the sanctions that were imposed on them when America left the deal. So, Iran has a vested interest in renewing this deal, at least that's what it would seem, with regards to sanctions anyway. We'll see if they actually hold up their end of the deal with regards to nukes. I would estimate that they would go for like one or two, you know, just to say that they have it, you know, because having it is a pretty big thing. They wouldn't be able to deliver it, not very easily, Unless they want to load it up onto a passenger jet and kamikaze it into the the place where they want the bomb to go. Because those uranium bombs are pretty big. Like, they're thick. And I mean that with two C's. They're, they take up a lot of space. They're really heavy. And they're really hard to get to your target. It took, it took what, four-engine bombers... For the United States to get the little boy and the fat man, which is Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the bombs that were dropped over those two cities, took a four-engine bomber to get them there. Or was it a six-engine? I think it was a four-engine bomber, B-29, four-engine bomber. 
I don't think Iran has any four-engine bombers sitting around waiting for nuclear weapons, and I don't think they have any nuclear-capable four-engine bombers if they do have them. So, delivery systems will be an issue, and I brought up the weight of the bomb because missiles, uh, you need really, really powerful missiles to get a bomb of that weight uh, significant distances. Modern uh, bombs have like multiple smaller warheads that somehow do more explosive damage. So you have six bombs that are individually more powerful than what you see with a bomb like this. But regardless, um, having this bomb, if they do go for it, you know, we're being hyped up with this news that they're going, they're really gunning for this enrichment. But we've heard that before, you know. We, we've heard WMDs before, too. We've heard chemical weapons before. We've been lied to a lot. So I'm a bit skeptical as to whether or not they actually are gunning for this enrichment. And people out of panic are not really verifying what they're saying. So I take it with a bit of a grain of salt. But I do recognize the possibility that it's there. And what could happen if they get their hands in the bomb? Well, I, Israel will think twice. Maybe a third time and then they'll go back to bullying Iran. That's what I think is going to happen. But having it uh, will bring, what, a sense of legitimacy? A sense of legitimacy to the government? I know they have a bit of civil unrest right now. You don't get to, to see too much out of Iran. I just know that since they've been in this standoff with the United States, they've had increasing civil tensions. And I wonder if crippling their economy had anything to do with that. But they get this bomb. What? They, what are they going to do with it? Aside from a potential boost to legitimacy, a morale boost to the people, see, look, this is an uh, Iranian, Persian engineering. We built the bomb when the whole world was against us. And maybe that's enough to get the people to stop rioting. If they're rioting, maybe that's enough to get them to go back to their homes if they're protesting. But outside of that, it's not enough in this day and age to just have the bomb. You have to be able to get it to the target. Otherwise, the bomb can just be blown up on your side of the border, and it's a liability rather than an asset. Israel has missiles. Heck, even North Korea has missiles that can go pretty decently far with a nuclear warhead on them. Iran would be so unbelievably far behind all of the other nuclear armed powers up to and including little North Korea um, it wouldn't really be the deterrent just having the bomb that it used to be they would need delivery systems and that's either gonna be a missile that they don't currently have or it's gonna be a a heavy lift capable bomber that I'm not entirely sure if they have and if they do have it, they need to retrofit it so that it's f suited to handle an atomic bomb rather than just whatever it is suited to handle currently. So it would 
even once they get this bomb, if they do go for it in the first place, it's going to take them a while to get the delivery system up and running. Because then you have deterrence. Because you having the bomb means nothing if you can't hit somebody else with it. Like, if I had 10 nuclear weapons and my neighbor had 10 nuclear weapons, I threatened to use my nukes against him and he threatens to use his nukes against me. That's deterrence, that's mutually assured destruction. Mutually assured destruction is the deterrence, not just having the bomb. See, because just having the bomb, if I can send my bombs to you, but you can't send your bombs to me, well, then there's no deterrence. There's deterrence to keep you from bombing me, because I can shoot you back. And you, and I guess you not even being able to fire the first shot is deterrence enough by itself. But there's no deterrence stopping me from bombing you. You can't shoot me back. So just having the bomb in and of itself is not deterrence. They need delivery systems. So if they actually do go for the bomb, what we should focus on are their delivery systems. Because for now, I don't see them uh, in, a, in strong enough. I don't see their delivery systems being strong enough to get them significant range even just to hit israel like maybe they could screw over saudi arabia with the blast radius of the bomb but israel seems out of reach with iran's current technology now that could change in a decade easily i'd imagine once they put some significant resources towards the delivery system they could solve that issue moderately quickly but for the time being even if they had the bomb tomorrow they don't have deterrence so they would need so um for now i'll just go at the auspice that they're doing this for nuclear energy and not a nuclear weapon and i guess we'll we'll just really just have to keep our eyes on this because it is a potentially lethal situation waiting to happen i don't imagine israel is going to be very happy about a nuclear armed iran i don't think on a, a nuclear armed iran is going to be very any more appreciative of getting bullied by Israel than they are now. But that being said, we're going to move on to Chad. A chatty situation. Let's have a Chad, shall we? I'll stop. So recently, the U.S. State Department has ordered all non-essential and non-emergency U.S. personnel out of the Chad due to concerns of rebel forces gaining ground near the country's capital. Uh, the rebels, after seizing a military base in northern Chad, had started moving south. The rebels accused the government forces of being aided by French air support. Uh, now, this is something the French have yet to make a statement on, um, whether or not they, you know, confirm or deny, or if they refuse to confirm nor deny. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. They they have yet to make a statement at all on this. Maybe they made a statement already and at by the time I'm recording and I'm just, you know, out of the loop like I was with the Suyas, but for now it seems like they haven't made a response to this. Um however though, regardless of what their response is, I would say that given the French military, given that the French military can be found in many countries throughout sub-Saharan Africa, 
and West Africa in general, I'd be willing to believe that the I'd be willing to believe the rebels to a degree. Um, the French are currently fighting multiple low intensity wars of occupation uh, in West Africa in general, their former colonial territories. They never really let go, so their troops are still kind of there fighting uh, rebel groups in various, you know, non-friendly regimes, potential regimes, I should say, because the French aren't exactly willing to let these rebels gain power. So, given the French involvement in the region in general, I'd be willing to believe the rebels in Chad to a degree that the French probably played some part in the Chadian military um, fighting them. No, I was going to say winning, but the Chad military doesn't exactly seem to be winning at the moment. Maybe they'll turn the tide. But, very interesting thing. Uh, and what this kind of situation really reminded me of is that in places where American influence fades, other powers will step in. And I guess America was never really omnipresent in Africa, which is how the French managed to stay there. Because um, the French do have a independent military. They manufacture all their military equipment. They have an actual standing army. Not some sorry excuse for an army, like most of Europe has settled for having, with the exception of Eastern European countries, who kind of, you know, kind of get the importance of having a military. Uh, or Greece, for that matter. Who is, they, they understand why you need a military. They're sitting next door to Turkey, who is getting stronger by the day. So... Countries like those seem to get it, and France in particular seems to be the only European country in West Europe who also gets it. But, I guess here in Africa, it made me remember that as America's influence is kind of like fading throughout the world, and we'll probably see some sort of inflection point in the future, where we either go all out of our way to reassert that influence, or we just leave. But for the time being, as that influence does fade, other countries will fill the gap. Powers, either regional or foreigners, with a long-range deployment capability. Uh, translation. Yeah, so, I guess I didn't deliver that little note right here properly. I didn't say it right. Because uh, I said powers will step in where America is not. But I spoke it like a question rather than a statement, powers, either regional will step in or foreigners with long-range deployment capability will step in. And I have translation here that we can observe who the great powers are and who they will be based on who fills the vacuums left by American absences in any given region. Uh, China, Japan, and India, and even Australia, are filling the gaps in Asia, even with the Americans there. The Americans are just sort of sanctioning, and by sanction I mean, you know, approving of, not sanction as in economic sanction. It's weird, 
the Americans are approving of the last three and, and doing their utmost to screw over the first one. And not succeeding too well on that, I might add. But you have countries like that filling the gap there. You have Iran, Russia, and Israel, and even Arabia, filling the gap in the Middle East. Um, Turkey is still kind of dormant. They're still, their sphere of influence is kind of like hovering just beyond their borders. That's, that's their sphere of influence right now. Uh, countries that sit just beyond their border are within their sphere of influence and only for so far beyond that border. But I'd imagine that as time goes on, Turkey's sphere of influence will start to grow as they get more belligerent and more confident in themselves because they are getting legitimately stronger. And at some point, it's going to be they're going to be able to take on one of their more powerful neighbors or at the very least one of their weaker neighbors and be strong enough to where the other neighbors don't do anything to stop them. So we'll keep our eyes on Turkey, like every other geopolitical analyst tells you to, because they are an interesting little wild card in the world. But Turkey filling the gap in the eastern Mediterranean and trying in the Caucasus, but Russia filled the gap in the Caucasus, a place where America was absent. We have conflict in the eastern Mediterranean brewing. America is nowhere to be found. Who's filling the gap? Greece, Egypt, Israel to an extent, Turkey, Libya, and France. France stepped in and ended uh, sort of the East Mediterranean conflict that was brewing. At least the, the French managed to tone it down for a while. We'll see what happens in the future if those tensions start to reignite and whether or not the French will come back. And if they do, will, will they be able to stand up to Turkey? At that point, because Turkey is building a decent modern navy. So, we will see. There's tensions in the Eastern Med. America is absent. There's tensions in Eastern Europe. Specifically the Ukraine, where America is again absent. There's tensions in Taiwan, where America is absent. You see these places where America is not there... In any real capacity, you see these places start to have their regional powers. And even outside powers who have the reach to get there, like in the case with France and the Eastern Mediterranean, you see powers asserting themselves in the places where America is not. So as we move forward into the future... Uh, it'll be interesting to see who fills what gaps and what they gain from doing so. So we'll, we'll have to keep our eyes on that. Uh, almost for, uh, we've been, uh, we've been talking about France and passing for a little bit. Maybe we should, maybe we should talk about France sometime in the future, but for now we'll let the blue beast rest. But now, we get to the last segment, and that is the American hegemony under siege. Now, we'll start with, just recently, the U.S. canceled the deployment of two destroyers to the Black Sea, the body of water 
uh, directly south of where Russia and the Ukraine meet, directly north of Turkey. Um, the UK then immediately aimed to s do so instead, where they sent in two destroyers of their own. They have two destroyers en route to this location. Uh, I mean, all this for reasons I have yet to see the benefit from. Uh, and I'll, I guess I'll get into questioning the actions later on. But in response to this, Russia had... Well, actually, no, not really in response. The Russians had previously made moves to move their warships from the Caspian Sea to the Black Sea. A uh, little fun fact is that they actually have a canal linking the Volga rivers, which the Volga is the river that goes into the Caspian Sea, and they have a canal linking it with the Don River, which is a river in Russia that leads to the Black Sea. And they get kind of close at a point, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and the city right there has been renamed to Volgograd these days, I, if I'm not mistaken. But back in the day, it used to be Stalingrad. So, there's a fun fact right there. But they have a canal there, uh, somewhere around that area, where the two rivers come together. Almost come together, they don't really. But they have a canal there that allows them to act as if the rivers do come together. So, they are able to move warships from the, the Caspian Sea to the Black Sea. Uh, however, due to treaties regarding warships in the Black Sea. They had to run this by Turkey before they did that. Um, now that implies, given that these ships are making it into the Black Sea now, it implies that they did this in response to something that happened earlier, which implies that it was a response to the Ukraine and not the US. But given the optics of this happening right now, it looks like to the untrained eye or to anybody who didn't previously know about these developments that it, Russia was just responding to the United States and Britain trying to send warships into the Black Sea so they're going to send their own warships into the Black Sea that's what it looks like and I guess it just works out for the Russians this way anyway and, but it's sort of this weird thing this weird little escalation going on over the Black Sea, warship in the Black Sea. Uh, I'll add that to the list of things to rant about. Meanwhile, China is ramping up its incursions through Taiwanese airspace. Uh, now, the U.S. is currently set to impose more sanctions on Russia. Um, and at this point, the Russians are so used to the sanctions... Um, that they're basically laughing at them now. And I guess this is where I'll transition from covering the articles, not articles, covering little news stories, to the rant that I've been promising at the end of the episode. And that is, why? I mean, what a, what a, we're sending destroyers, or at least we were going to send destroyers, to the Black Sea, we smartly chose not to, although it would have been smarter if we didn't even get to that point. Um, and then the UK is going to send them in on their own. But what would we have gained from sending warships there? What, are you going to 
You're gonna blockade the Russians? What are you gonna, what are you gonna do? What, what exactly does sending warships straight into the teeth of the Russian what self-defense war machine gonna accomplish? What is putting destroyers well within the range of anti-ship missiles and I mean the reliable target range of an anti-ship missile, not just the theoretical range. I don't know what sending a destroyer into that radius would do for you. Especially in the event that something happened. Something stupid or deliberate that kicked off a war. What? Because anything can happen. Your guns could go off by accident and hit the wrong object at the wrong time at the wrong place. And then you're at war. Something silly could go down and we could be at war tomorrow, all because silly actions were taken. And we have to ask ourselves, or at least I have chosen to ask myself now, before something like that happens, chosen to ask myself, what are we, what are we doing? What, are, what do we gain from this? Like, again... I don't see how sending destroyers straight into the teeth of anti-ship missiles is going to do you any good. You're going to send them to the body of water that is this close to the Russian mainland. And the Russians are notorious for building anti-ship missiles and spamming them. This is, this is the idea you've come up with? You're going to send warships there? It doesn't make sense. And then the UK was more than happy to go do the same stupidity. Uh, but I, I don't get it. And then you have these sanctions on Russia. Um, more sanctions on Russia. And what we've started to learn now, or at least us regular people, I don't know if the people in charge have learned this yet, but sanctions are a bit... They have diminishing returns. They have diminishing returns... And what I mean by that is, they work really great in the beginning, but then, uh, over time, you see countries adapt. They diversify their trade. They diversify their economy to work around your sanctions. And then, obviously, the response at that point is to just put more sanctions on them. And then more, and then more, and then more. But what happens when... The guy on the other end of the sanctions regime survives the economic hit job. There's nothing you can do to him. He is immune now. You've wasted all this ammunition to try to take him down, and he's still standing. Now, sanctions mean nothing to Russia. They've been sanctioned for, oh, what, seven years now? And it's just not working as much. But we're still just stuck in this, oh, if we don't like somebody, sanction them, sanction them, sanction them. It, I, it doesn't work after a while. And at some point, you just have, I ask myself, am I okay with the deliberate sabotage of someone else's life and livelihood? Some people that we are not at war with. For the sake of, uh, what? A hegemony? Why are we so belligerent with, so belligerent with Russia? Because 
them colluding in our election was proven faulty. So that's not it. It's been proven twice now. Despite massive, you know, what what can only be called a propaganda campaign against them. They're not the boogeyman we've been making them out to be. So why are we so belligerent with them? Why are we going out of our way to antagonize this country in their own backyard? Like, this has nothing to do with this conflict in the Ukraine has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do. And we're sending warships into the Black Sea, unnecessarily endangering our troops. And that says a lot, given the nature of the job. Why are we there? No one can tell me. Uh, no one can tell you either. It, it doesn't make sense. We have China ramping up incursions through Taiwanese airspace. And you have all these thinkers and all these strategists and generals and brass and all these people doing these talks and these interviews talking about how we have to we have to defend Taiwan. We we can't give it up to the Chinese. We we have to box them in. We have to we have to engage China differently. It's not it's not the old Cold War. You you know you can't just do the old thing, the all the same old same old and expect to win. But those same people then propose that we do the exact same thing, fight a cold war, and expect to win. How are we? They want us to do the exact same thing. And give what? What would we gain in the event that we go over there and something bad happens and we end up at war with China? What do we gain in the event that we win? Whether that takes a couple tens, a few tens of thousands of people dying in a decisive naval battle and they just surrender. Or if it's a couple hundred thousand people where we fight over the island of Taiwan itself, featuring multiple amphibious invasions from both sides. Or if it's a war where millions of people die because we have to invade the mainland of China. What do we gain? In the event that we win. If. Because that, that's the question. If we win. What do we gain? Why are we there? What do we gain? A, a destabilized Asia. Because you destroyed the Chinese regime. Oh that's great. That's a great idea. A country of a billion and a half people. We're going to go screw over their government. And leave them back. In the warlord era, yeah, that's a that's a brilliant idea. No, no, it, it doesn't make sense. It makes no sense. Why are we there? No one can tell me. I, I can tell you why China is a threat to Taiwan. I can't tell you why China is a threat to the United States because of Taiwan. Why? And I guess the answer goes back to our all these foreign entanglements we have. But looking at them now. And the fanaticism that it creates among people within America that we have to, we have to do this. We have to be here. We, we can't leave. I was watching this interview this other day. Uh, not really an interview. It was more of like a, like a lecture type talk. Yeah, it was a talk, basically, where the guy was allowed to give his thoughts on the situation. And he was talking about, oh... Biden needs to repair our alliances. 
and get us out of Afghanistan. Otherwise, people will say, let's get out of, let's just pull out wholesale. And he was making it out to be like this, this terrible thing that American soldiers wouldn't be in Europe and wouldn't be in Asia or and wouldn't be in the Middle East. And it's like, why are they there in the first place? Why are they still there? What purpose does NATO serve if the Soviet Union is gone? What, we, we're going to go out of our way to antagonize the Russians? That's a great idea. We spent 40 years trying not to do that, but here, here we go. It's like, what, what is our purpose? And increasingly, the answer is that there is no purpose in the things that we're doing, but we're just doing them for the sake of a hegemony. And that's what it is. And I personally disagree with that. I don't like it. I don't like the idea that every time some country does something that we don't like, we just decide, you know what, you don't get to have an economy today. And then we throw all these sanctions at them. We throw the book at them. And then their people suffer because they disagreed with the way we think. And that's not fair. It's not fair at all. I mean, you could make the argument that they're living under an authoritarian regime, sure, but me being an advocate of national self-determination, that is entirely up for the people of that nation to decide what their governance, what their governance is going to be. It is not us. We don't decide that. It should be left to the people of that nation. Now, how you get to the the point of having a nation, uh, I don't know. All right. I won't try to pretend that I know how every border should be drawn, who gets to live where, who gets what plot of land, and all that. I won't pretend. I won't even attempt to act like I know how that should go down. I'll just start from the easy point, which is once you have a nation, getting to the point of having a nation... I will leave entirely up to the people making it. But once you have a nation, that is your nation. And it is not the place of other people to determine what you and your government do in your nation. I understand, from a realist point of view, that larger countries will have outsized influence in these smaller countries. And even influence within one another as we see with America and China their influence with one another but countries should be allowed their own domestic issues they should be allowed sovereignty over their own domestic issues instead of having a hegemon running around saying you know what you don't sovereign nations aren't actually sovereign because we're going to dictate to you what your domestic policy is not your foreign policy, your domestic policy. You have to be like us. You have to be a democracy. You have to think the way we do. You have to impose upon yourself our values, irrespective of whether or not the people living in your country agree with them. And I don't think that that's right. I don't think that it's right to go to war because some country doesn't want to use the petrodollar uh, to make their transactions. I don't think it's okay to basically start forever wars in somebody else's country because you're afraid of who's going to win their civil war. 
I'm talking about Syria. I'm talking about Afghanistan. I'm talking about Libya. It's not our place. I, I don't like it. I greatly disagree with it. I think it's wrong. It doesn't make sense, geopolitically speaking, for us to be doing these things either. They have nothing to do with us. I mean, come on now. How would we respond if either Russia or China did to us what we are doing to them? Uh, I mentioned last episode the prospect of aircraft carrier battle groups in the Gulf of Mexico, Chinese aircraft carrier battle groups, and imagine they say that they're doing a, what? Uh, what's it called? A freedom of navigation operation in the Gulf of Mexico. How would we respond to that? We, we'd be contemplating whether or not nuking Beijing was an option. That's, that's immediately where we would go. We would go way past 100. We'd go to 200 and 300. That's where we'd be at. But for some odd reason, we've decided that it is okay when we do these things to other countries. And that it is not okay for them to respond to us with anger. Easily understandable anger. I don't have to justify the deeds of the Chinese government to explain to you why they would be angry at foreign ships sailing through waters that are close to their home. I don't need to justify what's going on in Xinjiang or Hong Kong. I don't need to justify any of that to point out the obvious. We have no business being over there, and yet we are, and so they're angry at us. And we would be angry if they did the same. But for some reason, it just flies over people's heads. At, le at the very least, it flies over the heads of the people in charge of our country right now. I don't think it's right. I think it's a bad... I think it's a series of bad moves that's going to get us all either in trouble, in deep trouble, or it's going to get us all killed. That That's genuinely what I believe. I think we should leave. We should. The longer we stay there, pretending we're going to have the resolve as a nation to defend everywhere, every time anything bad happens, the farther these places are going to fall when we inevitably pull the rug out from under them. Because in time, whether that's this decade or next decade, one way or another, at some point in the future, America will have another isolationist phase. I'm in favor of that happening sooner rather than later, but it could happen later, right? And what then? What then? All these countries we've gone out of our way to put into our protector get screwed over because suddenly their umbrella is gone and they have to deal with the reality of their neighborhood. And it, it screws them over. It, it screws them over. It screws them over. It screws them over. And I'm, I'm just not down with the things that we're doing. Because the responses that we're getting for them are obvious. But then we just keep doing the same thing and expecting people to just accept it. Well, people aren't accepting it anymore. Oh. And uh, I guess from a personal point of view, I'm not trying to get drafted to go fight a war for a hegemony. Alright? If I'm going to get drafted to fight a war, it's going to be... 
for America, not for America's sphere of influence. Alright. Oh. oh well. So there's my little there's my pent up isolationist rant at the end of the episode, beefing it up to ungod an ungodly timestamp. But I really mean all that, you know. I uh these days I've begun envying the Americans who've come before me who got to experience the isolationism that I currently seek. Uh, maybe one day I'll get my wish. Maybe, maybe I'll, who knows, maybe I'll regret getting my wish. They always say, be careful what you wish for. Maybe I'll regret it. But I don't regret it right now, I'll tell you that much. I don't see a reason why not to be isolationist right now. It would easily sidestep a war with China and Russia simultaneously. So, there, there's my argument to the people who want us to be engaged and oh, speaking of engagement, American engagement has become my single least favorite combination of words in recent times. I could use stronger language, but I think you all get how I stand on these issues and kind of how worn down they make me when I have to read them. But there are always lights of hope in the tunnel. At the very least, I get to watch the interaction between the great powers, and I get to, over, uh, through this podcast, I get to watch and share with you my experience watching uh, how the world interacts with each other. And some of, the, some of the funnier things that happen, like two dudes on a motorcycle killing a whole nuclear scientist. Uh, I swear that's going to lead to a war. I, I, Israel and Iran are going to get into it one of these days. One of these days, Iran's going to snap. <laughs> I don't know if Israel's ready for that smoke quite yet. But, regardless, uh, I'll skip the, that. I guess that'll do for the closing segment. I won't do like a little transition to my closing segment. Because this episode is pretty long right now. But, that being said, that is all I have for today. I got a whole lot off my chest. Maybe you'll agree with me, maybe you don't. But, uh, that's where I stand anyway, uh, regardless of where you stand with where I stand, I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Now, the world is changing, folks. Whether it's changing for the worse or changing for the better, we'll just, we don't really, we don't really know. But I guess to find out, we'll just have to keep watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Tyshawn Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. Mm-hmm.